you've been on the front lines of corporate downsizing. You've been on the front lines of corporate price fixing. You've been on the front well, lines well, that's, that's, of, our, that's, of our misadventures I'm sorry, that's, of our misadventures in foreign policy. You've had direct experience of many of the things that make a lot of young people very angry about the way that this country uh, is operating right now. You don't seem to embody that anger. So the proposition that I've been on front lines of corporate price fixing is just to get that out of the way. You worked um, for a company that was fixing bread prices. Uh, no. I worked for a consulting company that had a client that may have been involved in fixing, or was apparently in a scandal. Ah, good old Pete. Yeah, I'm going to have to watch that uh, whole thing. Yeah, no, no, um, it has been released yet, the whole thing, but, um, mm. yeah, it's, I think it's coming out tomorrow. Um, but anyway, welcome everyone to All Against All, uh, my name is Don Rhodes, podcasting from the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and I'm joined by Ben Moody. Hello again. Hey. Uh, so after a relatively long break, we, we are coming back, as promised, with an episode on management consulting and its rise, uh, its rise in the world and Australia. Um, and it's actually like I've actually genuinely been really pumped to talk about this because I've because, like, it, I think it really does have a lot of, um, I think the, the contours of the issue just really do sort of uh, fit very well with, with a lot of the sort of big arcs of, of hit the history of capitalism over the 20th century. So I've been, I've been really keen on talking about this. Um, but, I was, uh, but first, we'll just as briefly as possible, because it's so depressing, uh, how are the fires going? <laughs> Yeah, so I think there's not much point really touching on this for too long. The um, Everyone knows what the situation is here. There's been some rain. There's an ongoing um, mm. discussion now around whether the government is going to use this as an opportunity to um, uh, change their stance on climate change. The media is kind yeah. of and we might, constantly... We might get to that I think we should talk about that at the end because I've, I've, it's, it's a good example of the, of the, the media giving the liberals just the most, the most rope they possibly can. Yeah, the media is constantly um, sort of scratching their heads and wondering why the government is not using this as an opportunity to stand up and act as bold leaders. Um, uh, <laughs> But the government is, of course, pivoting toward an adaptation angle um, to the extent that they are. Uh, you know, Andrew Forrest um, was in the news recently for just having made a significant donation. Um, but I think it was something in the order of $66 million. But I think 50 of that um, actually went to a, um, a US-originated think tank on um, wildfire mitigation and adaptation strategies, um, <laughs> which I think we can all read as code for an anti-climate change right-wing think yes. tank, right? It is going to be a yeah. adaptation, mitigation, backburning, um, and that's yeah. really the whole, the direction that everyone's going to the, is. Welcome to the Iron Rand, uh, the Iron Rand Institute for, uh, for, for fire strategies. Yeah, and I, that's the direction that the whole thing seems to be going in, is that they're, of course, using the opportunity to say, I mean, the narrative around we need more backburning, this has been caused by the Greens, has completely won. I mean, th there's no question anymore. That is now, I think, I would suggest what the bulk of the population believes, which has actually kind of got me to an, an interesting kind of topic that is probably worth discussing on a future episode, um, but which is... You know, this is the, the way that this response can be orchestrated, that this thing can happen, that everyone thinks is, oh, this is going to really force them to change their tune, right? This is going to force them to, to recognise this is an issue. They've immediately got a media establishment that is able to propagandise to the average person as to why this is not an issue. Mm. Um, and then they've immediately got a think tank and policy establishment that can provide them with a pivot to yeah. this mitigation adaptation stuff. And that whole apparatus is the deliberate result of, you know, 100 years of um, investing in media and investing in think tanks um, and creating an 
a right-wing apparatus for developing the logical and kind of technical arguments, as wrong as they may be, needed to support their kind of position and the apparatus to disseminate those ideas. And I think in, I think what's interesting is that, you know, obviously that's a stance that is a lot easier to take from a position of power when you've got a lot of money. But I think it is really something that the left does not invest enough in. Um, and I think... yeah. You can, I think that you can sort of see, you can see that coming out in, in just how successful the Sanders campaign has been um, with their essentially creation of a, para, a parallel media and they're leaning on this kind of parallel alternative media in the States. Um, mm. Whereas I think, I think a lot of leftists historically have kind of gone, looked at this through the prism of saying, well, um, of the sort of the pre-70s era and sort of going, mm. well, you know, the way that you win is through organising, through strikes, et cetera, which is obviously true, but I think mm. they've they've taken their cues too much, I would suggest, from a pre-internet era and have yeah. ignored the importance of essentially that, ki- that kind of um, ownership of, uh, of the he- hegemony uh, that propaganda hegemony and i don't mean yeah. just in the case of making sort of logical well-reasoned arguments i mean also just in the case of like lying about things creating controversies yeah. that can easily spread and um innuendo and hearsay um i mean you got to get into you got to be in that game <laughs> well yeah absolutely i mean like when you think about like, like the, the u.s really has had a a giant proliferation over the last sort of seven years um of alternative media uh, sort of outlets propping up, you know, uh, Jacobin, the Grey Zone, the Intercept, um, the Hill, you know, TYT. The Hill, yeah, I mean, TYT yeah. being um, the I mean, the, uh, the original, right? Yeah, absolutely. But when you think about Australia, we're sort of basically like what crikey, and that's about it. Like, I, I actually yeah. don't think I can think of it. I don't think I know it, and I and. This is bad at me. I don't pay for cracky at all. Like, so mm. it's you know it's it's a it's a very you know it is a I mean it it is often remarked about how concentrated our media is in Australia, but that's both in a you know yes the right wing just dominates the media landscape, but also there really isn't even a small alternative media scene that um that that can mm. really challenge it. Um, so yeah, I think it is something we'll need to build up over time. But but my fear is that uh, that is just a result that's just derives from population. I mean that perhaps yeah. the population is just too small to sustain that kind of stuff. Because I mean, even if you look at something like the Hill, which is such a professional kind of slick operation, mm-hmm. really for a left wing media outfit. I mean, you'll look at YouTube videos they put up that get two hundred, three hundred thousand views. Um. And I mean, that's with the United States audience. So if you kind of expand yeah. that to Australia, I mean, how do you, you can't how do you sustain an operation with when you're getting you know 200 views? Well, <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I was saying even if you if you do enter that extent, you're talking literally only 2,000, which might net you like a dollar on YouTube. Mm. <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, it is uh, it's a perennial problem. Um, but we should probably move on to the. Um, I do think, sorry, just, just quickly, that I do think that yeah, that sure. does raise the point of, you know, a left wing left wing media does not always need to be explicitly left wing, right? I mean, one of the reasons that the right has been so successful is that they've insinuated their kind of ideology into spaces that they position or that people see as non ideological. So, like, you watch Sunrise, and you know, you like. Um, you get you just comments about dog traffic is a bad idea. Yeah, you, exactly. You get comments about doll bludgers um, dropped in between reviews of bread makers. You know what I mean? Whereas I yeah. think the left kind of like always steers away from. I mean, what is disingenuous bad faith engagement? But hey, you know it works. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, well, every time we, every time anything vaguely left-wing tries to set up in Australia, it's always the Saturday paper or, like, something that's just, like, it meant to be delivered in this sort of extremely, like... Like, it, it, it's aimed explicitly at, like, 
uh, upper middle class people, basically, mm. um, you know, and, and it's sort of like, we're just going to deliver you the hard truths. The, the um, boomers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, it's hasn't been a great strategy for us. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so do you want to talk about management but, consulting? But, but maybe, maybe we could uh, get some management consultants to help us out on it. <laughs> mm. um, All right. So, so, so what's uh, so what's what's generated your interest in this topic? The Buttigieg scenario, um, or is this um... uh, a bit of the Buttigieg scenario? But also, um, I think I like. I think I like personally. I've. I mean, when I was in uni, it was something that, like, I you know very much considered doing, and uh, and you know uh, you also. Uh, you also did for a little while. Um, mm. And the, there was always this idea that uh, came with management consulting that it was always the smartest people in the room. Like that was their, that was meant to be their whole, their whole point, right? That was like, that's how they sold themselves. So, you know, when you're, when you're at university, like doing, I was doing law. So it's a, you know, a degree like law. And I wasn't necessarily sure I wanted to be a lawyer. You know, it sounds like it's like, oh, that's, that's where I want to be. Um, but then, as I've sort of over time uh, and, you know, talking to you and talking to other people in it, and uh, and this also really comes out from some of the research I've done on it, the main thing you learn about it is that when, when it's hard to explain what someone does, uh, what they're basically doing is whatever the hell the client, the person wants and uh, just repackaging something that they already want uh, to sell to, a, to an either internal stakeholder or to or to make more palatable to people who are um, who are going to suffer as a result of it, um, mm-hmm. and all sold through these like basically signifiers of like elite um, of, of elite uh, intelligence and um, and uh, sort of things. So they they the the development like the development of the of the the MBA and the development of McKinsey are actually really heavily tied together. Um, mm. Which is it's like you sort of because we now sort of think of them as McKinsey high McKinsey and and Bain and and BCG and stuff all you know hire these people um, who have M, who have MBAs to sort of demonstrate that they have the best people but the but McKinsey in particular helped develop the MBA in order to say it had the best people like mm-hmm. it's a it's it's a really it's a really fascinating. Um, so it's a really fascinating area, um, and you've 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 worked in it, and uh, you you sort of know more a lot more about the detail than me, and you know more about the situation in Australia. Um, so do, do you want to just like I want to give a sort of history of it. Do you want to give a brief overview about what about what's happening in Australia before we get before we get into that detail? Um, yeah, so I think I, I think. Um, Maybe the way to tackle this is to, because I, I, I do want to talk about what I see as being the sort of um, the role that it plays in relation to its clients, because I think in the economy overall, because I think um, there's sort of, it, it sort of has a, a dual nature under capitalism that um, is really interesting to get into. So maybe first we just talk, in really broad terms, I'll talk really in really broad terms about. Um, Actually, you know what we haven't done yet? What? We haven't defined what is management consulting. Well, I was going to say, so I'll talk in really broad terms about my experience of what it is, and then we can talk about the the sort of very general history, um, and then I'll talk mm. about the um, development of the industry in Australia, and then maybe some conclusions yep. about what that I think that means for capitalism. So um, management consulting is essentially a way of – so th- theoretically, management consulting is a way of um, more efficiently purchasing um, employee skills that would be expensive or impractical for you to retain in your own organisation. And the way that I think about this is in relation to the concept of transaction costs. So 
Um, a hundred years ago, I mean, the, the, so the, I mean, the eternal question is, has always been why do firms, I'm sure I've talked about this before, the Ronald Coast, but why do firms operate as essentially authoritarian organisations instead of internal marketplaces? And the reason is that it is too difficult to go out and um, contract for everything that you want. Um, mm. So when cars were a very kind of niche product, there used to be like engine makers and coach builders and they would build the drivetrains and the bodies separately and so you could get a car drivetrain built and then go find someone else who'd build the body. When they came to mass producing cars, it was too hard to go and like contract to somebody who was going to build mm. a million bodies, so you do it yourself. Over time, mm. I think what we've seen happen is that communication technology has, I mean, as Coase sort of implied, predicted, implicitly predicted, communications technology has reduced the cost of um, contracting out for those things. So, mm. and management consulting, I think, is part of that. So, 100 years ago, if you wanted to, you know, do some process analysis, which is essentially where management consulting comes from, process analysis, or you wanted to develop a new business strategy for getting into a new market or whatever, I mean, you'd have to go out and hire someone to work for you who could do that. Now, mm. theoretically, they would tell you that there are only so many people in the world who can do that, and you don't need someone like that all the time. You only need them for a short time, so isn't it more efficient to have to yeah. concentrate all of that specialist high-quality talent in one place and then have them ha and then allow all firms to draw on them, which is what management mm. consulting essentially allows. Mm. So the thing that management consulting is kind of most closely identified with is strategy, development, mm -hmm. whatever that means. Um, I mean, I can tell you <laughs> what I think it means. It means answering a set of questions about how you're going to use the limited resources at your disposal to achieve your goals in the context that you're in, um, which includes um, working out what your goals are, what the barriers are to achieving them, and um, what your option, the capabilities you have and your options in light of that. That's not actually obviously mm. where management consulting emerged from. It emerged from um, Frederick Winslow Taylor's um, work on process engineering and getting people to shovel coal faster. Um, mm -hmm. Now, since then, it has kind of expanded into, there's sort of, I'd say there's sort of three big, big divisions to management consulting firms overall. So one mm. I would call the, so one is obviously the public accounting piece, which we'll come back to. Yep. Um, two is the, what I would call the general manager aimed enterprise service piece and three mm -hmm. is the C-suite piece. So for in the, end, the general manager level, firms have tend to have all of these different specialist practices. So back in the day, McKinsey would sort of talk about how they only had generalists. Mm -hmm. um, and that's bullshit. I mean, most firms, all firms now really have, um, unless you're quite boutique, have got lots of different sub-practices. So McKinsey has a digital practice, a supply chain practice, technology practices, mm -hmm. whatever. Um, you know, Deloitte has got, or EY or whatever, much more so. I mean, you can, they will have an mm -hmm. HR practice, a process practice, IT, et cetera, et cetera. And so they will come into particular areas of the organisation and help them go through big transformations, basically. Um, put in new systems, do organisational restructures, all that kind of thing. And one of the reasons that they do that is, I think, to overcome... One, because staff in corporates often don't have the capability to do it. I think that is true. Um, and two, because it does provide a way of circumventing internal bickering around the solution in question so your internal people may not mm. necessarily think it's a good solution maybe it undermines their jobs their roles makes them redundant mm. whatever so you get someone else to do it then there's this board component board and c-suite component and i think in my experience what i've always seen is that um the big four ey pwc kpmg and deloitte and then the sort of associated big tech consultancies like Accenture and Capgemini and whatever all play in that general manager space. Mm -hmm. 
McKinsey, Boston and Bain, um, my observation in Australia has been they tend to operate in this C-suite board space where essentially mm-hmm. a company will put them on retainer to run their board strategy day and to make packs for their board strategy day. And to facilitate packs, uh, PowerPoint. Just to be yeah. And to to facilitate, so theoretically, they facilitate the board strategy and planning process. Now, obviously, Mm. most companies don't, most big companies in Australia don't really, you know, how do I put this? They don't really strategize and plan in the way that, you know, a sane, logical person would think of it. So the board will go and come up with some sort of high-level bullshit about blockchain and, I mean, because people on boards are all 65 and deluded Mm. from being rich for too long. They'll come up with some bullshit about fucking blockchain and whatever. And so they'll have their sort of like publicly acceptable board strategy. Then they'll have the real game strategy that the C-suite executives work on, which is really the strategy about extracting value from the company for themselves, which is the we're going to do a buyback here, we're going to do this media release here, we're going to... sell or buy this asset or restructure our credit in this way so that we can justify our Mm. bonuses. And then the real strategy of the organisation actually tends to kind of bubble up from below and it forms through all of those things kind of meeting and and working themselves out because all the different general managers who have got EY and Deloitte and whatever in are all competing to prove that Mm. they're good and that their transformation programs are going to be successful. And so... It essentially becomes a kind of Lord of the Flies situation as to who kind of gets their thing up and whatever. Mm. Um, so McKinsey and Bain and whatever sort of operate in that rarefied air and I think they they essentially provide a kind of um, security blanket for board and C-suite personnel. Um, mm-hmm. they, give, they give them a sense of, you know, being able to have someone on call who's smart, who gets it, um, Mm. And um, yeah, that's I mean that's that's been my sort of experience of the different key components of it. Yeah, the so my my observations from the outside to to just like to put this in very simple terms are that are sort of uh, like the the bit that spoke to me most about what you talked about is that in that overcoming that internal bickering element. The um, mm. the like the need of various managers to uh, to want to say actually no no it's not just my idea it's these separate smart people's idea who have independently come and looked at this problem that we have and they've actually endorsed a solution that I was talking about a See, while ago. I, I people always say that I don't actually I I'm not sure to what extent that's true because. I think it, maybe it was at some point, but I think it's now they've been so overused that most that I, I don't think most people really see them as credible external players. You know what I mean? I think right. What they really are is essentially, and they allow executives can still weaponize them just in slightly different ways because one of the ways that you can kind of win this war of resources and ideas, whatever, in your organization is just to make sure that it's just to be faster and slicker than everybody mm. else and to get slicker packs up more regularly to the executives with better figures and right. to just dominate through your general your other your peer level opponents through pace and sophistication um so and i think so in your mind it's more of a, it's almost more of a mercenary force than, yeah, a, than a sort of external because, justification absolutely because i think the average general manager doesn't feel in a corporate in my experience does not feel that they can trust their own staff with the things that are relevant that really matter to their career because um, they're, um, I mean, in a lot of cases, I mean, the, the, the standard of corporate Australia is very low. Like the staff who work mm. for them, I mean, in, uh, in general are caught up with their own politics and are not that, not that fucking good. Um, mm. The other thing that ties into this is um, just purely the kind of the way that um, financial reporting works and so this applies for both the government and for private orgs is that they all want to show that they're cutting headcount constantly to save money um and consulting does not for reasons that we'll talk about soon often does not come under 
it does not get reported in a way that is um it doesn't get reported as headcount um and so therefore it doesn't it doesn't seem to contribute to this big ongoing expense you can essentially file it under project expenses and therefore you can yeah. make it seem like what we're doing is investing for the future rather than just running this big inefficient outfit um, um and that actually that's probably that's possibly a good jumping off point to um to go to uh the history of where this came from um so ben briefly touched on this before but um management like management consulting and most management consultants themselves uh they they, they will draw their work back to the to the sort of um the work of frederick taylor and the sort of the process engineering side um but um at least in a lot of the research i've i've done on this um there's there's actually equally about, uh, uh it equally has roots with jp morgan and the sort of and the um which a man who comes up in almost every every element of modern capitalism. It's actually it's actually amazing how how mm. often he comes up. So, so while Frederick Taylor, it, it's absolutely true that the the uh, the um, management engineering is that is that what he called it? Management engineering. I can't remember the term exactly. Um, does come from his his approach. Uh, he, he was focused on the the factory floor basically. And making, you know, as you said, making sure that people shoveled coal as quickly as possible, and were doing it as efficiently as possible. And J.P. Morgan was more focused on the, um, on the the sort of C-suite side of things, as we'd call it now, the the corporate board. Um, but in reality, what what people like J.P. Morgan and um, uh, was offering in the like pre-1930 era was essentially a management consulting service as well as a banking service the all the sort of expertise that were like that we now consider management consulting how to you know how to restructure how to uh how to how to make your 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 store more efficient how to make uh, your production more efficient was sort of tended to be held within large banks but when in the uh, after the or during the depression uh, during um, with the passage of the Glass-Steagall Act, there was a separation of um, of these functions, and actually, it actually included the sort of management uh, um, functions away from the banks, and so you sort of got this creation of a, a totally separate industry that was divorced from investment banking, um, which was which has become what's now known as management consulting, um, and this sort of coincided. Uh, you know, with the uh, with uh, World War Two, and uh, obviously, Amer you know, the West wins the Second World War, and America basically I wouldn't say starts in its imperial project, but it it become it gets into a much much um, it goes into a, a very accelerated phase, and you see like from that point on you start to see uh management consulting firms like uh, mckinsey really is the uh is the easiest one to talk about here because it really it's existed for this whole period um it starts to it starts to show up in europe a lot um and it starts to contribute to how uh how european firms organize themselves and there's this sort of uh they talk in the literature about the american challenge and that was basically a, um, and again, it's talked about in the literature as a rationalization and a concentration of management um, uh, of firms and management in Europe. Um, and that uh, and that was basically the, the process that uh, the management consultants helped um, basically birth in Europe through the, through the 50s and 60s. Um, and then you sort of see a second a second wind of it uh, of it happening of management consultants spreading out through the world uh, in the 90s, which basically coincided with the collapse of the Soviet Union and uh, and the need to transform European economies. And so, at the same time that you see um, at the same time that you see the the rise of the World Bank and the IMF and and the sort of what do they call it the structural adjustment the sh uh, shock therapy 
um, approach to things. You also see, uh, uh, again, particularly McKinsey showing up in um, in third world countries. Um, and there's an so you can sort of see how like how management consulting has kind of been this. Uh, I really liked the line that um, this particular article uh, had, which was that they they played on the idea of the medium is the message that uh, really. The, the management consultants weren't aren't weren't just sort of transferring elite transferring elite uh, sort of power and um, you know and uh, training foreign elites in American ways. They were actually like really changing how business and and how capital worked in these countries. And they have been doing it in the nineties in in Eastern Europe in a much more in a much more shocking way. Than, um, than they did in their 50s and 60s in Western Europe. Uh, and we've also seen that develop uh, in, in the third world um, as, the, as the IMF and the World Bank have sort of started, have implemented their, their structural adjustment approaches to, um, to uh, global finance. So you sort of, but then we've got this other step, of course, the, the, that I think is really necessary to talk about in terms of how management consulting operates in uh, in Australia now and around the world, because most of the scandals that we hear about um, are to, aren't, aren't really to do with management consultants' work with private companies, which is what I've been talking about really up till now and what Ben has mostly been talking about. But it's to do with uh, with their work with government. And you sort of see in the 90s and, uh, um, and sort of accelerating in the early 2000s, that both in the West and um, and in the third world, management consultants become increasingly involved in functions that we typically associate associate with um, with government. So uh, there was a one of the articles I read was about the uh, the uh, attempted privatization of the Pakistani Civil Aviation Authority. Um, again. McKinsey's uh, foot uh, handprints hand are all over that one, um, and in in the West, this was tend to be driven by the sort of Reaganomics, uh, new um, what do you, what do you call it? N, um, NPM, uh, new, um, new public management. The, the sort of new yes yes that's it. New public management um, theory that we need uh, that we need government to work more like a business, and. Management consultants have, have been, and management consulting firms have been absolutely key in in that process. And in the third world, it's tended to come from uh, the, the the IMF shock doctrine that you know you you need to that in order for your economies to function more efficiently, you need um, uh, you you need to be privatising more, basically. And so this is kind of why I find them so fascinating because they've sort of they sort of show up in all of these uh, all of these stages of um, particularly post World War II development of capitalism, and it's and it's spreading into the third world, and it's and the, the sort of transformation that we've seen in um, in in the way our government works in the West, um, which I you know it almost reminds me of uh, of the Roman senatorial class basically. <laughs> Yeah, so sorry. I just I just finished talking about the um uh the development of management consulting as a as a profession, um, and I think that sort of ends up with uh, uh you know a bit more about this than me. How did uh how did management consulting sort of come into Australia, and what's its what's its position now, particularly in in relation to the government? Well, I mean, I don't, as far as I'm aware, I don't think there's anything sort of special about how it got established here. But I mean, it um, it's very much mirrored the trends in the United States over the last ten years. So the industry is going gangbusters, um, booked record growth last year. Now, one of the reasons for that, the biggest reason for that, um, so the market grew by more than eight uh, percent in 2018. Um, mm. has been because of that is nuts. Biggest reason for that is um one of the biggest reasons is largely due to increased government consulting. So in two thousand and seven eight, um, the big four firms were making around a hundred million a year from federal government contracts. 
2000, by 2012-13, mm. they were making just under $400 million. Um, and now in 2017-18, they're making just under $600 million. So KPMG, which now accounts is the largest market, um, has the biggest market share, went from $56 million in 2007 to $197 million, $719,820 of federal government <laughs> revenue alone in 2017-18. Yeah. And that is only federal government revenue. KPMG is... Yeah and I don't have the stats for this, but colloquially seems to be accepted as the dominant player in state government consulting as well. Now, yeah. this is interesting, right? So this has also occurred. I've got two graphs here, which we'll post up in the episode description that are courtesy of the SMH that are fascinating when overlaid with each other. I don't know if you've ever seen that thing that goes around on Reddit. That's the, um, it's a map of the United States and it's got, um, uh, unexplained disappearances of people overlaid with um, the National Cave Network. Um, no. <laughs> and it's a, similar, it's a similar kind of spooky correlation to that. So in 2007-08, the big four were giving a, com a combined around maybe 550,000 um, in political donations. Now in 2017-18, they're giving almost a million. So... Which is an incredibly, incredibly good return on your investment. Um, it, it really is. shows like how little it costs to buy a political party in this country. And I mean, I extend that. I, I extend that to both parties because I mean, it did. Oh, um, this spend, this spend dropped off when the coalition initially came into government. Um, it was. It's now it, back. It, it, it's now right it, back up there. <laughs> it, oh, it's it's doubled since. I mean, not doubled, but it's substantially increased beyond what it was at the peak of labour spending. But, I mean, labour still grew the industry by um, to some, you know, five or six times its initial size. Mm. And, um, um, and, uh, so I'll just ask you, like, what, like, obviously there's the, there's the, there's the donation side of things, but I think, I think there's also the, the, uh, the approach to the public sector side of things. Absolutely. So, I mean, this is driven by a couple of factors from both the government and the public service. So, the public, the governments obviously want to be seen. I mean, this is, you know, part of the logic and capitalism is that the government wants to be seen to be cutting the size of the public sector so as not to, quote unquote, crowd out the private sector. Can we can we do, uh, just delve into that a little bit more? Because I think th I think there's there's a really there's a really interesting correlation between management consultants coming into government and the rise of, of basically a um, you know the new right in in the in the 90s and a sort mm -hmm. of very dramatic and a very dramatic approach to cutting government spending. Um, mm. You see it I, like sort of like politically for me, I think of um, you, you see Newt Gingrich uh, and, you know, and his face off with Bill Clinton, hardly, hardly, a, hardly a massive defender of, of, um, of big government um, uh, in, in the States. And you have that, that first, I mean, now they seem to happen like clockwork, but that first really big government shutdown. Um, and, and Clinton, while he did hold the line on, on Medicaid um, and Medicare, uh, he basically gave in on on a whole lot of everything else, and you you saw like a really dramatic cutback of um, of the uh, the American public service. Um, and while I don't think we ever had a moment like that here, it does seem like that same approach of like, well, just as a general proposition, we should be shrinking the government. Hmm. Seems seem like, or at least appearing to shrink the government, seems to be. Um, seems to have just gotten into the discourse regardless regardless of which side of politics you're under like i i i remember people you know in um in um i think it was during the 2014 budget talking about how you know it was actually a good thing that labor was taxing uh less of the economy than the coalition were and like you can see why that's a good thing but but overall, like, shouldn't 
shouldn't we be making the argument why we should be having a bigger government? Why we should be well, well and I think it's a, interesting a that that is the the further away we get from that initial privatisation NPM push, and the more the more the evidence seems to come out around the fact that what well, countries that have got government spend as a higher proportion of GDP that have got more public ownership tend to achieve better economic development outcomes, and the IMF um, and the BIS kind of come out all the time now saying that governments need to raise taxes, governments need to raise taxes. And I think that what that all speaks to is, you know, there was this idea in the past that the market was um, a more efficient mechanism for allocating resources. And and I think Mm. if you are making the argument, if you're a body that previously used to make that argument, and said we need to cut government because the mar- they are crowding out the market's ability to allocate these resources. And now you're saying mm. that the government needs to come back into that because all of the evidence indicates that higher taxes are actually associated with better economic performance overall. What you're essentially mm. saying is that the state is a more efficient mechanism for allocating resources than the market. That, mm. although this defies all logic, deliberate planned decision-making about what to do with society's product might be better than allowing completely ad hoc, uncoordinated decision-making and hoping the right outcome results. Um, yeah. But I think you're absolutely right about the, the management consulting thing because, I mean, the size of government has, has shrunk overall, but um, there is also – it has not shrunk as much as the public service has been cut because a lot of that – money yeah. has then gone to management consultants. So as the public service has been cut, um, it has lost um, both a lot of staff but also a lot of good staff um, mm. and increased the need to rely on management consultants to do different yeah. types of work. Um, but also there's an incentive and, um, for... And if we, and if we can... Uh, and, uh, sorry, I know I keep interrupting you here, but like I, again, like it's because it, it's almost comical in this... Those good public servants that lose their jobs, or those older ones that that uh, that might that where the, the department might have um, might have been restructured or something, um, say they're still in the workforce. Where do they typically end up then? Um, and we had a big four consulting firm. Um, yeah, yeah. The yeah, it, preferred. It's, it's funny. Uh, also, that now the preferred career path for um, uh, failed labour apparatchiks. Absolutely. <laughs> Are you incapable um, so, of winning a so federal election? Come to KPMG. Fuck it, get paid. I know it's, uh, it's an over... It, it, like, it, it's, it's sometimes a, I don't know, a joke about Canberra, but it's true. Like the, there's, there is a massive pipeline of just people who were previously in the public sector who have either have had their job cut, who get hired to do basically the same thing at a higher at a higher rate um, in the, the in the private sector it's mm. it's not at all it's not at all a move to call this F any more efficient is is an absolute fantasy it's it's genuinely yeah. just a greater wealth to to a um to a bunch of firms that uh, uh, like uh, I will literally I use the word leeches on the, on the on the um, on the public sector well, the other thing um, about it is that governments, obviously, particularly conservative governments, don't really trust the public service. So it makes more, it makes a lot of sense for them to want to hire their own people. But what happens, right, is that the public service ends up, because of ongoing efficiency dividends and so on, being in a position where they can't do the things that they need to do, even to implement the government's policy agenda. Um, and um, now, just before you move on that, um, just to clarify for everyone, so efficiency dividends um, are basically a, um, and correct me at any point here, Ben, um, they're basically a, a, a system that governments have set up where they say you need to be 2%, you need to be uh, 2% more efficient every year, i.e. you need to be cutting 2% of your budget every year, of your ongoing mm-hmm. budget every year. Is that that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, and so we've we've basically had that situation in place for what fifteen years. Mm. 
Yeah. So every for 15 years, federal every, and state. basically every federal and state, every government department is meant to be reducing its costs by a couple of percentage points every year. Yeah. And the other thing and, that gets implemented in addition to that is labor caps, though, which is where this kind of gets yes. interesting reconsulting because so in addition to that 2%, they will say, well, you've got to spend 2% less and of all that money, with all that money, you can only hire X many staff. Mm. But of course, that doesn't include consultants. Yes. So then it becomes, as a public servant, you're left with, I mean, if you're a secretary or a deputy secretary and you need to get something done, maybe you genuinely want to get an important piece of work done or maybe the government's asking you to do something and you feel you don't have the staff for it, your only option is to go to one of these firms. Mm. Yeah, and that's why we've seen these um, this piece that um, you've uh, posted and maybe we should post in the description as well about this, um, this issue of consultants are now doing a lot of work that um, I don't really like the term core, but what you would consider, you know, the, the core public service work, stuff that mm. you really think should just be the, the ongoing grind of government. Um, mm. It's, um, which is, uh, which is an, an, uh, also an interesting, um, an interesting parallel I know I'm jumping around here a lot, but it's an interesting parallel to what you see in, in the private sector in terms of people never hiring staff, but we'll just have like a bevy of consultants sitting there doing mm. essentially um, core banking work, core, core, um, core engineering and that work. Is, core, yeah, and that is a, the result of essentially these account or what I'll call like, you know, essentially accounting kind of semantics. And mm -hmm. it's interesting because both federal and state governments have been pushed about this. In, and when I say state, I'm talking about New South Wales, obviously. I'm not sure about anywhere else, but have been pushed on this issue lately. There's been work done to look into, well, hold on a second, like how much money are you actually spending on consulting? So mm -hmm. the federal government there was, um, launched an inquiry in 2018, as did the state mm -hmm. audit office. Um, mm. Now, the National Audit Office inquiry found that um, uh, federal government departments struggled to define consultancy and that they, <laughs> they concluded that under-reporting of consulting spend was widespread uh, and I would not say that they, they said it was uh, deliberate, but certainly the AFR felt that the evidence was sufficient to run a headline on 21st of February 2018 saying government hides $200 million of consulting contracts. Yeah. Um, so, so just to lay out what we've gotten so far. So you have an industry that basically is relatively poorly defined other than that it gives advice and strategic advice. It now, couple gives, that with you it, being a government that wants to be seen to be cutting the public service, but also yep. wants to reward these same your donors. People, yeah, these same people who, are, who, have, who have doubled their donations to, to, uh, to your political party over a very short period of time, and you're confronted with this, this problem of, well, oh God, I need to keep the public service down for reasons that... Uh, really kind of weird but it's just that's what we do nowadays um and and also i you know oh god how am i going to do that while also maintaining the core functions of government that everyone expects me so i can get re-elected uh, re huh here's a ready-made solution yeah and so we'll set up a, a essentially a procurement a sort of staffing and procurement system that pushes the departments down this angle and then we'll get them to under-report it. Um, mm. So essentially, the National Audit Office found that there was um, systemic under-reporting of consultant contracts by hundreds of millions of dollars a year, and that the Department of Finance was unable to define what a consultant is or does. Um, so really, mm. we've got no idea um, how much money is getting spent and on what. Essentially, the same result came out in the state government, that there's very little kind of structure around how this data is recorded. 
Now, the mm. federal government, out off the back of this ANAO piece, um, launched a inquiry um, into a um, what's what I'm looking for a parliamentary committee inquiry into consulting spend, which was mm. um, mysteriously shut down in April, the beginning <laughs> of twenty of 2019 without um, hmm. producing a report. So Edmund Tadros... Oh, God, I who, wonder how that happened. Edmund Tadros, who is a great journalist who writes on this stuff for um, the Finn, um, April 17, 2019, he writes that uh, despite receiving more than 100 primary and supplementary submissions and holding three days of public hearings since December 2017, committee chairman and Liberal Senator Dean Smith said in a statement the joint Committee of Public Accounts and Audits had decided not to issue a report out of the inquiry, which was into the use of consultants and contractors by the federal government. Um, so, yeah, okay. So, let, 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 okay, let's just back up another step. Okay, so we have we have an industry that's donating, that's doubled its donations over the last over the last ten years. That has that was also somehow doubled its government contracts over the last 10 years and a public service that's been cut to the point where it needs to rely on these on these services uh, and there's a question about whether they're misusing funds or, and whether it's uh, whether it's a good mm. use of money and those same politicians who who are getting these donations are meant to be investigating the use of the money by these consultants and the inquiry that they have set up just uh Decides there's not really an issue after two years. Is that about the size? That is of correct. It? That's correct. There's a nice inquiry there. Uh, you got there. Yeah, be a shame if. Uh, be a shame if, uh, if somebody uh, suppressed those reports, eh? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and Tedros also notes that during the 45th Parliament, this committee issued 25 reports, and this one was the only one that was allowed to lapse. Um, so. The, they used the excuse that the election had just been called and the committee had to disband, but they nonetheless carried over a separate inquiry that was still running on cyber resilience and resumed that after the election. So this is, look, I, I'm not going to, I'm just asking questions. I'm just asking <laughs> questions here, you know, Alle allegedly, fair use, Far allegedly, just us. asking questions. Far be it from us to uh, to to speculate on the motives of, uh, of federal politicians, um, but yeah, the, the question needs to be asked: uh, Why did this shut down? There's so much I want to discuss here, but to, there, there's two other elements that I want to really talk about. The first is that consultants have this, and you, we heard it in the Pete Buttigieg clip that um, that that we played at the start. It's this wonderful situation they've set up where both parties get to deny responsibility for anything. Mm. Um, the, the government gets to basically, where there's a fuck up, they get to deny that they were responsible for it because mm. it's the consultant's job. And the consultants get, the, get, to, uh, get to banality of evil style, remove themselves from... Uh, from any moral responsibility for what they're recommending because they're just going off what their client wants. Mm. And, and the Buttigieg and video is just that. an amazing example of someone with absolutely zero um, kind of uh, ability to look to look at, at what they do systemically and to look at their role yeah. in perpetuating a system. Um, yes. It's, um, yeah, it, it's amazing. I don't want to stay on Buttigieg for too long, and because I, I just hate him so much, and I and I can mm. go on about how much I hate him for ages. But his, like, like one of the reasons I like because he is like clearly quote unquote smart, like he clearly knows what he's talking about. So there's no way on earth that he doesn't sort of see uh, this situation. Not only that, his dad was a master academic, a Gramscian academic. Um, yeah. So he gets even less, even less uh, um, space. Um, I don't know though. Know, I mean, I mean, we we know heaps of people who have grew up in very left wing families who, you know, are even who are smart, even ostensibly progressive people who I don't 
you know, who I don't think would really be willing to be that critical about what it is they do, um, yeah. the role that is, what it, their I, profession plays in. Yeah. To be fair, we all have to. We all have to. We all have to make a crust. No clean hands in a dirty world. Yes, but. But but also like as someone who's like again I don't want to talk about it for too long but as someone who's running for president I think you're actually relatively okay to be like hey yeah I did this job um, I did this job for a while I now think it was a bad idea like yeah totally um, yeah anyway but I think but, but I think that that's it's worth just quickly talking about um so in summary like what does all this mean about the role of management consulting and I would say that it is um. It is a function of this kind of essentially inform information tech communications technology allowing us to, as automation and technological development has created a sort of um, uh, increasingly polarised the workforce into technical experts and managers and, mm. um, you know, the casualised precariat, the um, mm. communications technology has also allowed capital to theoretically operate at greater scale and more efficiently by consolidating its managerial class. So you no longer mm. need to have yeah. separate groups of managers running different firms. You can have one group of managers running all the firms, essentially. And then mm. um, I think that the foray into government has just occurred as a natural part of the whole process of um, removing government from the sphere of investment and therefore creating more opportunities for capital to generate a return from doing more activities. Um, yeah. But I think I think we should absolutely see management consulting as part of this process that you know Marx talks about of um, the of and that he sort of observed to some extent even in the 19th century of cap as capital comes globalized and operates at increasing scale of a sort of generalised, and he talked about this in terms of banking more so, but I think consulting is part mm. of the same mechanism, um, emerging that and overseas it, it actually allocation... Was. Yeah, well, I mean, to your points before, the same thing, yeah, yeah. that overseas the yeah. allocation of capital among all enterprises from the kind of centralised position of the finance and professional services industry rather than overseeing the allocation of capital in separate firms all around the world. Mm. Like, I, I, again, I could about this for ages i i really do find it really fascinating but the um you can also see sort of echoes of lenin of lenin's sort of take on imperialism here and oh a, absolutely and a um and a which which just very briefly explained that uh, just very briefly explain explain it is basically not the idea that capital eventually conglomerates and monopolizes so much over a certain industry that it then requires new markets to open up and you can don't know about uh, that again, one, fam. <laughs> but you can see, you can see management consulting's role in shaping those systems. Every new place that that uh, American style capitalism um, needs to come into, in you know, uh, like in in the 1950s in um, in Western Europe, in the 1990s in um, in Eastern Europe. And uh, and throughout the world, through the 80s and uh, throughout the third world, through the 80s and 90s, and the uh, and the sort of uh, adoption of the shock, of of shock doctrines, and, and it, like the the fact that they're there through all of it is what is is what sort of really interests me. And I think, I, well, I, I think, think it partially a... goes as well to the way that we talk about production and circulation, because I think obviously production Marxism whole you know has a special place because it's in the act of production that value is created but you know as i think i've said many times before on this pod the um that doesn't diminish the role of, of circulation you you always mm. need people who are going to make sure that the money goes where it goes that you're opening up the markets that the the ground as you're talking about right then that the ground is tilled for capital to be effective you can't mm. underestimate the the absolutely critical importance of circulation-based roles like consulting for doing exactly what you're saying, setting up environments where production is going to be, capital is going to be able to apply itself to production effectively. And, um, I, and I, I don't want to get into it, and I think we'll, we'll move on to our, our next uh, topic after this, but 
we've gone through all of this without even talking about like I, in, in, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read off a list. Uh, if you know, if you want to talk about how terrible the management consulting industry is, just in general, I'm gonna just read a list on from Wikipedia of um, of McKinsey uh, of McKinsey's scandals. Um, and it's and the thing is to talk about how terrible this whole thing is. We haven't even needed we haven't even needed to go into these, but. Just for some more context, the clip that Pete Buttigieg, the, of Pete Buttigieg before, was about him and his and his role in McKinsey and Company. If if you go to to Wikipedia and go to Scandals and Criticism, and I will I, I'll also bet that every other firm we've talked about will have something things not at, not as in, in, intense as this, but that. Uh, equally is morally culpable. So just to start, scandals and criticism. Enron, they uh, they had a pretty large role in uh, in um, and in fact, uh, McKinsey Consultant went to jail for 21 years uh, for for their role in the Enron scandal. Uh, we then have uh, their role in uh, in ICE, the immigrant U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, where they were actually sacked after a while because the ICE bureaucrats thought their ideas were too extreme uh, <laughs> after they suggested after they suggested reducing uh, uh, like reducing the food and water um, amounts to like to an efficient level <laughs> one toothbrush per two people yeah think about think about what um, think about think about the guy who had to, who wrote that report someone who sat down uh, Recommendation like, number four. Uh, food and water levels are currently at inefficient levels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, role, in, uh, role in Saudi ca- uh, clampdown on dissidents. Uh, they, so they also have a lot of work for the, uh, for the Saudi government. Um, oh, and in love particular, yeah. uh, In particular, making sure that, uh, that, um, that uh, dissidents don't speak out. Uh, they've also worked for the uh, the, Tur- the um, Turkish uh, Erdogan regime, the um, the the, uh, the Turkmenistan regime, the uh, the Yanukovych regime in Ukraine. Um, uh, God, it, it goes on. The oh, they uh, they uh, recommended that, <laughs> they recommended that um, that uh, um, I forget the company should turbocharge sales of oxycotton during the uh, during the late two thousands. Um, um, also, just in the Australian context, this is much smaller scale, but worth noting that Deloitte um, advised the state government uh, on, has consistently advised the state government on um, restructuring and reducing the size of national parks, oh. the National Parks Agency. So. Um, if you do think that efficient, if you do think that land management is the is uh, the reason why these fires are happening, then uh, look no further. Then, uh, then um, these management consulting uh, companies, mm. again, they have their hands on everything. It's uh, like like you you almost and we didn't even get to we didn't even get to their role in the defence industry, which like if you look at any graph, um, like. Well, it's Most almost it's like, about half of their business in Australia. Yeah, like it's it's linked to it. Like, if you're listening to this podcast and you probably agree with us on a lot of things, like, like every every issue with imperialism, capitalism, like environmental destruction, corruption, everything, all of it, like, you will find the hands of management. Because well, it's just it's just concentrated capital management. So it's Everything, Absolutely. everything that capitalism produces, you can see refracted through that lens. Yeah, and again, and again, this is why I have so much interest in it. It's, uh, it's, it's really, it's a, the, it, it, it really is a, a like I, I think you could write, you know, whole books on on just the development of capitalism and and management consulting in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure they already exist, but anyway, um, anyway. I've got to go soon, uh, so what, what else do you oh, want okay. to talk about, or should we wrap it here? Uh, I'll, uh, let's, 
Uh, we can wrap here. I was um, we can we can do an episode just focused on one thing. Um, I was going to talk about the um, the meteor and the fires, but it's been done. So mm. you know we can uh, we can do that at another time. And it's also just one piece. So and it's you know it's just going to be infuriating. <laughs> yeah, I can't anyway. handle too much more of it. Fair enough. <sighs> yeah. Okay. We might so we might wrap there. Um, Thank you so much for listening. Um, I've really enjoyed discussing this, as I'm sure everyone can tell. It's uh, it's it's some it's something that I've uh, that you know I again I just find endlessly fascinating just in just how integrated it is into the world and the world we live in. Um, and again, uh, yeah, yeah. But so thank you very much for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Peace out.